Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Coming up on the Science Revolution this week, entomologist Professor Gard W. Otis is here on the murder hornets. They invade hives and decapitate the bees inside in just a matter of hours, and scientists worry about them gaining a foothold in North America. Beyond Nuclear's Kevin Camps drops by on the announcement of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission that it's proceeding illegally with licensing a proposed high-level radioactive waste dump in New Mexico. Plus, author Stephen Hassan on the cult of Trump. Find The Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. So we have giant hornets that are crawling out of the woodwork or out of the hives now in the Pacific Northwest called murder hornets. I got an email. (laughs) Honest to God, I actually got this email. It's got a picture of one of these hornets, and it says, Murder hornets are a false flag operation by the deep state to distract from the cabal of libtards and Democrats trying to cover up the creation of a biological weapon developed in Wuhan, China, dispersed by chemtrails to turn everyone into gay child-molesting pizza gators who will outlaw the Second Amendment and steal our guns. Right. Well... Back in the day at at MSU, I had a professor who was an entomologist, a rather humorless fellow. He used to get very, very upset whenever I would refer to insects as bugs. But I love entomologists. And one of them is on the line with us right now, Professor Gard W. Otis, who's an adjunct professor of behavioral ecology and agriculture at the School of Environmental Sciences in Ontario, Canada, at the University of Gulf and uh, G-U-E-L-P-H, Gulf. Apologize if I'm mispronouncing it. Uh, Dr. Otis's uh, Twitter handle is UOFG, and the website is U-O-G-U-E-L-P-H dot C-A slash S-E-S. Dr. Otis, welcome to the program. Yeah, hi. Thanks for uh, having me on. So I'm guessing that these uh, giant hornets that are referred to in the popular press as murder hornets, I know you have an actual name for them, a real name, are an invasive species but probably not something we're going to be able to get rid of. Where are we at with this? Who are these bugs and where did they come from? Well, they clearly must be from the deep state, and they came out of a lab in China, and they're undoubtedly here to destroy our entire society. And with that little spoof there, after your lead-in comment... <laughs> Thank you, sir. Um, the guy who sent me this email was right. <laughs> I would love to have that email because that's a classic. I love it. Um, I will forward it to you. Yeah, so these are really large hornets. There are two species, actually, that are virtually identical in what they look like, in their behavior, and pretty much everything they do. One of those species is the more northern one. is the one that was detected last fall out in Washington State, very close to the Canadian border, and also in British Columbia, just into Canada. There was one colony destroyed in Vancouver Island, which clearly must be a separate introduction from the mainland sites. And there was a beekeeper who had a colony that got chopped to death um, by hornets late in the year in Washington State near Bellingham, which also indicates there was a separate colony there to have that effect. 
So they're there. They're not yet common. We're not even sure they're yet fully established. And the two species together, I refer to them as giant because they're huge, two inches long. Asian because they come from Asia. Hornets because they are a group of insects referred to as hornets. So, first of all, if they came from Asia, they were there in Asia for a while. What part of Asia did they come from? How many people typically die from contact with them? How have they altered the ecosphere, as it were, or the local biological terrain there that might inform us how they might alter things here? How do people alter their behavior to avoid being stung by these things? I understand they can kill a person. If a bunch of them sting you, it kills you. If uh, with a single, a single one can kill a small animal like a mouse. So what do we know about these things, scientists know about them, that we should know about them, particularly those of us in the Pacific Northwest who might encounter them? And then my follow-up question would be, you know, how fast will it take for them to spread across the rest of the United States? Perhaps you visited Asia in one of, one of your travels. I don't know, but I'm sure many of your have. listeners have traveled to Asia. And I will bet 100% that you never got any warnings to watch out for giant Asian hornets. They are not something that the average person out and about, even in Asia and China and Japan and Vietnam and even down to Singapore, where encounters between people out and about doing normal activities would interact with them in a way that would get them stung. They are very passive when they're away from their nests or or away from a, a colony of bees they might have attacked and taken over. On general, they're not all that scary. And one of your questions was, what's the likelihood they'll get out of there, like continue to Mm. colonize across North America. The species that's there now is the more cold adapted species, as I mentioned briefly. I don't know exactly where it's from. To do that, you need to have samples from Asia that you can type, like do the DNA genetic typing, and then compare your samples from North America. And I don't think we have enough samples from Asia to even begin to meaningfully do that yet. So we don't know exactly what part of Asia they were from. We don't know if they're in their preferred habitat right now or if they're really in sort of a marginal habitat compared to where they originated back across the ocean. So the first thing they have to do is they have to successfully colonize and actually produce a sustaining population. And it's amazing how many insects and plants make it here but then die out and never actually establish populations. It happens all the time. So that has to happen first. There's going to be an army of people out there, including citizen scientists, putting up traps for these things they're going to monitor to try to figure out where they are, how common they are, get the samples, do the DNA analysis to figure out how genetically diverse they are, because that has a big impact on whether they can uh, adapt to the new situation. Um, And by the end of a year from now, we'll have a much better idea, I think, what's going on. And then they're on the west side of the mountains, and there's high mountains basically from British Columbia all the way down into uh, southern California almost. And they're not going to make it around across the desert. So the way they're going to get across the mountains is probably the same way they got to western North America in the first place, which is through wintering queens. So the queens... The colonies, at the end of the season, they get fairly large. They can get up to like 500 to 1,000 hornets in a single nest. These are are very impressive colonies. And they then switch over and produce a batch of new queens, maybe 50 or 100 queens per colony, per nest, and a group of males. They mate, and then those mated queens go off and overwinter. And when they're overwintering, there's about a five-month period there where they could be in packing material or a load of lumber or something like that. 
and they could get shipped across the country. So I'm not going to say they're not somewhere else in the eastern part of the North America, but I would say the chances of it are extremely, extremely low at this point in time. Yeah, most of our timber seems to be moving from the West Coast to Asia right now, where they, you know, make mm-hmm. it into furniture and. and well, there's lots of other goods that they could here. end up in a rail car or something that they could come across yeah, the country sure, with. So, sure. but it's going to so, be a random thing, and people want to know, like, well, when do I expect them? It's like, well, when do you expect the wind lottery? You know, like. Could happen tomorrow. <laughs> Buy your ticket, but it's okay. not like. How are they changing the ecology? I mean, they seem to like to eat bees. Are pollinators at risk? Uh, probably not. They really like to focus when the colonies get large at the, toward the end of the summer. They like to focus big sources of food like honeybee colonies. And when they do that, they actually recruit a bunch of females, a bunch of worker wasps to the nest. And then they attack in mass, and our bees just literally have no defenses against them. So they get chopped up, and then the wasps haul all the baby bees, the larvae, and the pupae back to their own colony to feed them for the next couple of weeks. Yikes. Yikes. Dr. Gard Otis. Dr. Otis, thanks so much for dropping by today and talking with us. All right. Thanks. I'm glad to talk to you. This Thank you so much. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Sponsoring the interview this week is New Leaf Natural CBD Oil. Boy, with all this flying around, you know, I have been doubling my CBD oil dose. I love CBD oil. It doesn't get you high, but it, and it's non-toxic, but it's a potent pain reliever and anti, or it has potent pain relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. I think is the proper way to say that. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Natural CBD oil is the highest quality CBD oil on the market. It's 100% organic, highly concentrated, has no additional additives, grown in the USA, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's NUleafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, it's spelled T-H-O-M. Go to NULeafNaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, NULeafNaturals.com. That's NULeafNaturals.com. That's NULeafNaturals.com. Code TOM. It's spelled T-H-O-M. NULeafNaturals.com. Kevin Camps is on the line with us. He's the regulatory waste specialist at beyondnuclear.org. Beyond Nuclear is the Twitter handle as well. And Kevin, welcome back to the program. Thank you for dropping by today. Uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, new news that has to do with our ticking time bomb of a nuclear power generation system across the country. Where would you like to start? Yeah, the pronunciation, nuclear, kind of like peculiar yeah. am I here. So. Yeah. Oh, there's, yeah. there is so much going on. I'm in Michigan during the pandemic with my family, and right here there's breaking news left and right. So for one thing, we just learned from the Toledo Blade yesterday evening that the Fermi Unit 2 refueling outage has been suspended for a prolonged or extended safety stand-down, as the company is calling it. And it's directly okay, Fermi related 2 is the, the reactor near Detroit, right? Yeah, Fermi Unit 1 was the infamous meltdown in 1966, We Almost Lost Detroit, the book by John Fuller that was then made into a song by uh, Motown, uh, We Almost Lost Detroit. And Fermi Unit 2 has been operating since 1988. It is a Fukushima Daiichi twin design, so we know what it's capable of. And incredibly, the COVID-19 spread at the nuclear plant seems to be so bad that the company has suspended the refueling outage. This is something that 
rarely to never happens, and it must be bad if they've done so. And it's very telling that the company did this, not the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which really is AWOL. It is derelict in its duty right now. It has washed its hands as a safety regulatory agency of the COVID-19 pandemic, says it's not its department, and OSHA has Mm -hmm. not stepped in to do anything about it. So it's really out of control. Yeah. Nate tells me it was Gil Scott Heron who did uh, We Almost Lost Detroit. Yeah, I couldn't come up with his name. Sorry. Yeah, there you go. No, no, it's good. It's uh, and, and thanks to Nate for that. So my guess is, Kevin, that over the last 20 years, as nuclear power has become less than popular and working in a nuclear power plant has become something that's you know weakly ridiculed on by Homer Simpson, that probably most of the people coming out of college with engineering degrees are not eager to go to work or even coming out of high school with a high level of technical competence are not enthusiastic about going to work in a nuclear power plant and therefore most of their workforce is probably well over 40 and probably a good chunk of it is north of 50 which means that they are the people who are going to get really really sick from this virus and that might account for why the nuclear power plant is shutting down but companies that have a much younger workforce are not experiencing, they're not being hit that hard. What do you think? I mean, I'm just speculating. You're right. No, you're absolutely right. 20 years ago, there were less than 150 graduate students in the United States to fill nuclear engineering ranks. And the industry's pushed back in the last 20 years, gotten federal money to throw at community college students and college students to try to entice them into the industry as nuclear engineers. But it hasn't entirely worked. So what you do have is a very aged workforce, like you said, that is vulnerable. And making matters worse, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has done worse than nothing. What they've done is they've given the industry everything it's asked for in the past several weeks. So, for example, limits on work hours, 12-hour-per-day limits, 72-hour workweek limits, which are already pretty extreme in a high-stress nuclear power plant. They have taken those limits off, and now it's 16 hours per day, up to 86 hours per week. People working that many hours, especially under stress, it's the equivalent of drinking three beers on the job in terms of your mental acuity. So mistakes can get made. As you said, people could be more vulnerable to contracting the virus in this weakened physical state. A coalition of nearly 90 groups wrote to the vice president about this, saying something has to be done. That was on Earth Day, and we've yet to hear a response. Interestingly, there's a 72-hour limit on trucking, uh, you know, truck drivers, an absolute limit, or, or maybe it's a similar limit. It's, maybe I'm wrong on the number, but there are limits on how many hours truck drivers can drive you know, per day, per week, uh, and until they hit a maximum and all that kind of stuff. The Trump administration has suspended most of those rules, too, so expect to see far more trucking accidents. I saw an email you sent, it just arrived a few minutes ago, actually, about leakage at one of these plants. Yeah, again, from Michigan, this time in southwestern Michigan, where I'm at, it's the Cook Nuclear Power Plant, two giant reactors, each over 1,000 megawatts electric. And Unit 2 had a primary coolant leak just a few days ago. So it's the first incident of this severity in the country that we know of this year so far. And it just happened in the middle of this pandemic. What happens to a nuclear power plant if its primary coolant leaks to the point that it's no longer covering the core? Well, fortunately, the leak rate that I remember reading about was eight gallons per minute, which is relatively small. 
but it did violate technical specifications, and they were able to bring the reactor down to zero power levels. But it's a very serious incident when you're leaking primary coolant water because, you know, worst-case scenario, you leak enough of that, and you're going to have a meltdown. So fortunately, this time, they were able to bring it under control. They are at 0% power. They're still hot, though. You have to cool a reactor for days until it's uh, in cold shutdown. That's what went wrong at Fukushima Daiichi. They couldn't cool the reactors that were still hot, and so they had the meltdown. Mm -hmm. So fortunately, it seems things are a lot more stable at Cook Unit 2, but it shows that incidents can happen, certainly during a pandemic, which raises all kinds of questions. I mean, how do you evacuate a population when you're supposed to be sheltering in your house? You can't do both. So those are the risks they're running by operating nuclear power plants at this time. That's remarkable. And for those people who may not be old enough to remember Three Mile Island and the infamous movie with, uh, what was it, Jane Fonda in that, or whoever it was. Mm -hmm. um, Michael Douglas, you know, yeah. who, Jack Lemmon. Yeah. And by the way, you know, if you're sheltering in place and you want a good movie to watch, I don't know if it's on Netflix or Amazon Prime or what, but it's probably out there someplace. What was the title of the movie? China Syndrome. The China Syndrome. That's right. It was the China Syndrome. Just give us a quick recap of what happens if, you know, somebody working in a nuclear power plant finally just is so exhausted that they fall asleep because they've been working more than 70 hours and, you know, coolant leak happens and it just keeps on leaking. Yeah, well, um, if you lose the coolant to the core, you can't cool the hellishly hot core, which is 600 degrees Fahrenheit. And if the temperature keeps going up to something like 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, that's when the cladding on the fuel rods ignites or melts. It's uh, zirconium. And now you have a reactor core meltdown, and you hope that containment holds and that hazardous releases of radioactivity are not emitted into the environment. But at Three Mile Island... There were emissions. There's various theories as to how that happened. There were hydrogen explosions that took place. And so people were exposed to hazardous radioactivity downwind. The official version is that nobody got hurt. Well, talk to, you know, literally thousands of families who lost people to cancer, for example, afterwards. And that class action lawsuit was uh, run out of time by the courts, unfortunately. So those people were just left to suffer on their own or they reached settlements with the company, which required non-disclosure. They had to just be quiet about it if they were going to get their money. So the casualties from a trucking incident due to fatigue are serious, but compared to a nuclear reactor meltdown, I mean, add some orders of magnitude. Yeah. All the information is over at beyondnuclear.org and Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste specialist. Kevin, thanks for dropping by. It's always great talking with you. Likewise. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. Have a good one. On the line with us is Stephen Hassan, a expert on undue influence, brainwashing, and unethical hypnosis. He's the author of three books, Freedom of the Mind, Combating Cult Mind Control, and most recently, The Cult of Trump. Freedomofmind.com is his website. His Twitter handle is Cult Expert. And Steve, welcome back to the program. It's great to have you again. I'm curious what you are thinking about where we're at right now with regard to the cult of Trump. What exactly is it? Who are the people who buy into it? How are they held in thrall to this? Uh, what's going on with this? I'm very frustrated that the messaging of what I wrote about in my book has not gotten as wide exposure as I thought it would get on all levels. 
What has happened since it came out is the term cult of Trump is used regularly by lots of people. But people don't understand that this actually is a framework that will guide us if people do the deeper dive into the material, a framework that will actually get us out of a long term mess. Even if Trump is not reelected, Trumpism is not going to go away. And with COVID-19, once we have a vaccination, there will be people who've been programmed to believe that vaccinations are bad and we'll take guns and we'll march on others. So we really need to understand the psychology of undue influence versus due influence. And we need to understand the powerful cult groups that are in the cult of Trump influencing Donald Trump and who have millions of followers who are his devotees. So can you help us understand those things by giving us some details and specifics? The COVID pandemic creates an opportunity to educate everyone about how science works and the value of experts. And one of the main things that I wrote about in my book was something called the fourth generation warfare, which is psychological operations aimed at confusing, overwhelming, delegitimizing people and institutions, which is what Trump has been doing with the people he's put into place in his administration. For example, assigning someone to be head of EPA that doesn't believe in the EPA, or putting someone in charge of education who doesn't believe in education. What We also have an incredible opportunity now because so many people are getting ill and unfortunately dying. That I think there's an opportunity if family members and friends reconnect with their family and, and loved ones who are Trump supporters and true believers, stop calling them you know, names or saying they're stupid or brainwashed cult members and start building bridges and expressing condolences and compassion, for example, if one of their uh, pastors dies of COVID, even though the pastor had previously said, you know, it was a hoax. It's an opportunity for people to come together. That said, I want your listeners to understand there are very powerful cult dictatorships like Putin's, groups like The Family that Michael Pence is a member of, two great books by Jeff Charlotte who were written about that in the Netflix docuseries on The Family. This is a group that's been influencing politics in Washington for 80 years that people need to know about. Opus Dei, which is an ultra-right-wing Catholic cult. And the most concerning is a body of followers called New Apostolic Reformation. And this can include many megachurches where the leader claims to be an apostle or a prophet of God who gets direct revelations, that speaks in tongues, casts out demons, does faith healings. And it's those folks that many of them are saying we can't stop meeting in public, and so what if people die? They'll go straight to heaven. 
and not give in to Satan. And they are completely indoctrinated in this black and white, all or nothing, good versus evil mindset that following Trump is doing God's will and questioning Trump and his policies is Satan. So we really need a, a heightened voice of Christians to speak out against these cultic groups. Franklin Graham, Billy Graham's son, who's making $800,000 a year from his charity, which if you divide it by 12, you know, it comes out to every month he receives $66,666.66, which is totally weird. (laughs) But in any case, he just posted on Facebook to his eight and a half million Facebook members, each of us will have to meet death. We need to go on with living our lives and doing our work. Fear and anxiety can be detrimental to your health as well. No matter how negative the reports are from the media and liberal politicians who want to use the coronavirus to destroy President Donald J. Trump, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we don't have to be afraid. Keeping the economy shut down is doing more damage to people's lives than COVID-19. Franklin Graham, you know, this, this extraordinary hustler writes, A, he's definitely not his father, but B, I mean, isn't this exactly what you're talking about? Yes, exactly. And Falwell also, son, is another one of these people that is promulgating this black and white, all or nothing, good versus evil, and saying, do what I say, because God has empowered me to lead you all. Instead of conscience, instead of realizing that true faith involves questioning and not being coerced, I definitely believe as a mental health professional and as someone who is spiritual that in order to practice religious faith, one needs to be able to have the capacity to think analytically and critically, to entertain questions and ask challenging questions to leadership and hold them accountable, which is when we're listening to Trump, anyone in his administration concerned about the safety of the American people or people who are concerned about the Constitution or the rule of law are being ousted and and loyalists are being put in, in their places. And this is very upsetting because it's portending that there will be authoritarianism as time goes on. Well, he seems to be running his administration in an authoritarian fashion. He gets rid of anybody who tells the truth or says things he doesn't like. Yeah, exactly. And attacks the media, as all dictators or would-be dictators do, because they want to control information. And the bite model, which you referenced in your reading, It stands for controlling people's behavior, information, thoughts, and emotions. And without an independent, vigorous media, people are going to be easily manipulated and indoctrinated and controlled. Stephen Hassan is the author of The Cult of Trump, freedomofmind.com is his website. You can tweet him at Cult Expert. Steve, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you for having me, Tom. That's all for this week's Science Revolution. You can find the video portions of the Science Revolution on YouTube and check out our Facebook page.